This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hey, hello. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by my great friend, Ken Isaacs. Ken is, I believe, the world's foremost humanitarian. Over the past 30 years, with Samaritan's Purse, Ken has led teams to chase the worst human suffering in an effort to save lives and ameliorate pain, something that he has done with remarkable and legendary effectiveness. This has meant bringing victims of war, natural disaster, and medical plague from Ebola to COVID, clean water, food, agriculture, education, infrastructure, and medical care. Ken has been active in Sudan, South Sudan, the Nuba Mountains, Bosnia, Haiti, Italy, New York City, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Niger, Kosovo, Somalia, Afghanistan, Japan, the Philippines, throughout Latin America, and in ISIS-controlled Mosul during the Iraq War. His legendary effectiveness has earned him the nickname the Indiana Jones of the Christian Relief Movement. And today I am just so honored to be joined by Ken Isaac. So Ken, welcome to the Rabbi's Husband. Uh, thank you, Rabbi's Husband. <laughs> Good to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you too. And uh, your chosen passage, or really passages, were Leviticus 19.18 and then Deuteronomy 6.5. Please tell us why you chose, of all the passages, these passages, perhaps starting with Leviticus 19.18, and also uh, what happens in these passages. Well, I don't have the passages right in front of me, so I'm going to speak off the top of my head. But in one, we're told to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And in uh, Leviticus, we're told to love our neighbor as ourself. And uh, that's in verse 18, as I remember in Leviticus. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, so exactly. 1918 is you shall not take revenge and you shall not bear grudge against members of your people. You shall love your fellow as yourself. I am Hashem and Hashem is God. Yes. So the, those two verses, as a Christian, later they come together in the book of Matthew, and the words of Jesus are that they are the great commandment to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, so that is sort of a synopsis, and they come out of the Old Testament, and so I chose those two passages today because that's what it culminates into. And that is, in my life, those are key mark verses for me that I try to adhere to. Now, before we get to the specifics of those verses, you have lived those verses, and actually they culminate into you should love the stranger, and you have lived that. Not only do you believe it theoretically, but you have lived it in the most intense possible way. In the three years that I've known you, and I think I met you when you were 65, so in the three years that I've known you at at your age, you have gone into hot zones for diphtheria to set up a diphtheria clinic in Bangladesh. You've gone into the hot zones for Ebola to set up an Ebola clinic in the Congo, and you've got into the hot zones of COVID to set up COVID clinics in Italy and New York City at enormous personal risk. Because if you had gotten diphtheria or Ebola, your chances would not have been good. If you had gotten COVID, you would have at least had access to good medical care, but we all know what the chances of someone who's in their mid to late 60s are when they have COVID. So why have you risked yourself to such an extent over so many years? These are just a few examples from a few years 
Why have you risked yourself in accordance with these passages? That's a good question, Mark. I I might resent a little bit you bringing up the fact that I'm now 68 years old, but I'm going to let that pass. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but it, it does prove the point. If you were if you were 26, you would have an immunity system that 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 could have fought COVID. And but it's a very different risk when you're your age, as we all know. Now, I'm in a high risk group now, and yeah. uh, but. You asked me a good question, why do I do that? And, I, you know, the truth is that I feel called to the world. I don't know how to stand to that. Uh, you and I have had this conversation at an Italian restaurant in New York, but I just feel like God called me to the world. I didn't know what that meant, but I did pray about it. I just felt called to the world. And so I'm a small town guy. I was in a blue collar family business uh, when I was 35 or 36. I came to work for Samaritan's Purse and you know, nobody had ever heard of Samaritan's Purse. It was a fledgling little new organization. And um, I've been blessed to be a part of seeing it grow and seeing the opportunities for outreach around the world. And so that's led me to 150 countries and all the things that you named in that, you know, illuminating introduction and uh, uh, and more. Well, I, I didn't even talk about the times when you were kidnapped, among other things like that. But I have had a front row seat to history, whether it was in Rwanda or Moscow or in Sarajevo, or whether it was in Indonesia during the tsunami or Japan during the earthquake in Nepal, but all of these places, Colombia and Venezuela, it's hard for me to believe sometimes that I actually get paid for what I do. I love it that much. I love helping people, and I feel like that I'm called to help people and to be able to do it at the level and the platform that we operate in today, it's just an honor. And so I'm 68, and I don't know how many years God will give me a good health and energy, but right now I've still got it and I'm still going. Uh, right before you and I started this talk, I'm making plans. I want to go to Khartoum and I want to go to Beirut and I need to go visit Syria. And um, so those trips are in the making right now. And really the risk to me is no more now than it's ever been. Uh, the only thing that, that seems now, okay, I mean, you can make some scientific case my age and you know, susceptibility to complications with COVID. But the risk are always the risk. And the work is the work. The ministry is the ministry. And I still want to be, I don't want to hunker down. I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to retire. Like, what would I do? There are a lot of things you could do in retirement. It wouldn't actually have to be retirement, but you're, you keep putting yourself on the line to ameliorate the pain and save the lives of strangers, of people all over the world who just share with you a common humanity. And, uh, and that's who you are and, and what you do with incredible effectiveness. And, and, and not only are you helping those directly, but I've met several younger people who you've inspired in your line of work to do things that are well beyond what anyone would have considered, what they would have considered their capabilities to follow you into loving the stranger. Now, let's just focus for a moment on 1918, because there is a nuance that the Jewish tradition gives to this passage that I want to see if, if your Christian tradition does too. So it says, you shall love your fellow as yourself. I am Hashem. Now, Rabbi Akiva says that's the greatest commandment in the Bible. Other great rabbis have said it's actually very difficult and we really have to wrestle with it because you could, before you can love your fellow with your, as yourself, you have to love yourself. And most people don't love themselves. And the example, for instance, that, that Norman Lamb gave in 1964 was when the Kitty Genovese murder happened in New York. He said, all of these people are hearing and observing this woman being killed. No one steps up to act. They don't love themselves. You know, in today's terms, someone who's uh, immersed in any kind of 
pornography or any using their time and their energy for anything like that, they don't love themselves. So what does it mean to love yourself? Because before you can love your neighbor as yourself, you really have to love yourself in a profound way. And that's difficult. So for me, I'm not a theologian, but for me, when you're supposed when when the scripture says, love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul, I think God is love. Love emanates out of God. And if you, to me as a believer, it's hard to understand what love would be without God in it. And when I look at places in the world where there's chaos and there's pain and there's suffering and darkness, spiritual darkness, there's no love there. And the the Bible is clear. Scriptures are clear. Now, I'm I'm speaking, you know, Old Testament and uh, Christian New Testament, but that God is love. So for me, it emanates from God. But to love your neighbors yourself, I had never conceptualized it, that I had to love myself. To me, it was more like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But I do have a love for people. And what it means also that is like, you've got to forgive people. Like when they do things that are wrong to you, you know, they could be mad, you know, but it's hard to forgive. And it's hard to give without any thought of our compensation recompense. But it's rewarding and it's fun. It's fun, not in a yaha, yeeha kind of way, but it's in a a self-affirming, rewarding, quiet kind of way, walking away from a circumstance or going to bed at night thinking, yeah, it's been a pretty good day today. Today, we saved some lives. Today, we helped some people. Today, we were able to show the love of God. Well, and I I think we we can get that from this passage because the conclusion of 1918 is I am Hashem. So normally God will say, I am Hashem who did something. But here he says, I am Hashem. I think teaching us that if you truly love yourself and you're just in communion with God, you're not going to want revenge and you're not going to want to bear a grudge because it's not about the other person. It's about you and it's about God. And why would you hold a grudge against someone or try to commit revenge against someone if you and God are not influenced by that person? Someone wronged you. Okay, I, I get it, but it actually doesn't affect me because I'm comfortable with who I am and who God is and who God wants me to be. And I think that's what this passage is teaching you. It's just like, God says, I am Hashem. We should be able to say, imitating God, I am who I am and be comfortable, as you said, with that. And that's what it means to love yourself. Yes, I agree with that. It's also interesting in in the context of a grudge and revenge. I think another passage that illuminates this is Exodus 23.5, which says, um, If you see your neighbor's donkey lying under its burden, would you refrain from helping him? You shall certainly help along with him. And the interesting thing there is along with him. It's your enemy. His donkey fell. Should you help him? He says you should should help him along with him, implying that if he doesn't help you to help his donkey, you don't help. So it says along with him, which is what's so interesting, that it's by doing something together with someone that you can uh, rebuild this relationship. And that seems to be the solution to a grudge or revenge. Yes, I, I'm not arguing that, but I'm thinking some things in, in experience. So you help people who have done horrible things in the same way that you would help the people who were the victims of the horrible things. And the answer is, yes, you do. So when we were, you know, as an example, when we set the hospital up at Mosul mm-hmm. and uh, the coalition forces were attacking ISIS, we had about 4,000 patients come in and we performed over 1,700 life-saving surgeries. And some of the people that they brought to us were ISIS fighters. And we treated those men the same as they do women and children. I believe that they thought that they would have anger in their heart. But in a medical setting, in, in the area of where the surgery was going on, the medical care was being given, 
we, we made no differentiation at all. We treated them all the same. We loved them the same, same level of medical care. But then there was a consequence when they went out the wall. If they were ISIS, they were turned over to authorities and the, the authorities of the law of the land. There was nothing that we could do about that. But I think that some of our staff that were there thought that they would feel hostility towards the ISIS people because they were seeing horrible things. The majority of the patients coming in were honestly women and children who'd been shot or blown up, you know. And that one woman was shot through the back and she came in, her child was dead because a bullet had passed through her into the child. I think that they expected they, they would have animosity and anger towards these ISIS guys, but they didn't. They saw them all as children of God. They were all in the same position as so far as in receiving medical care, they were helpless. They, they needed help. So we helped them in the ditch where they were. There's a parable in the book of Luke in the New Testament about the Good Samaritan. In that parable, Jesus tells the man, go and do likewise as, he's, as a part of defining who is a good neighbor. So that's one instance. But I felt the same thing in Rwanda back in 1994 when the genocide was going on. You know, you would know oftentimes who the killers were, and you would see the people who had survived attempted murder. But in the end, we, we help them all. We don't, it's not our job to sift through them and judge them. It, it's our job to help them. But there are legal authorities that, that are going to deal with them, and that's above and beyond us. We don't, you know, you can't intervene on those kind of things at, at that scale. I don't know if that gives any insight to it. No, it, it, it certainly does. So when you're, when you're in Mosul and you're treating ISIS fighters, ISIS terrorists, do they for a moment ask, what are these Christian doctors, medical professionals, humanitarian workers doing, leaving the comforts of their homes in New York or where you are in North Carolina to come to the most dangerous place in the world to treat me? Does that do anything to them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I can give you a specific example. There were three or four ISIS fighters. We had a separated area for men of combatant age, and we, we kept them in that area. And then the, the women and children were segregated into other areas. So there were three or four in the room, and one of our translators went in, and they didn't know that that person spoke Arabic. They thought that that person, I guess, was, you know, spoke English or something. I'm not sure what they thought, but they were whispering in low voices in Arabic, who are these people that are helping us? We have been trying to kill them. Why are they so nice to us? Why are they taking care of us? And that actually, when that uh, interpreter came out and, and shared that conversation with us, it encouraged all of us because we really do want people to know that God loves them. And to do that, you have to show love yourself, even when it's hard. You know, love's not always easy. You know, you've got family and, you know, love's not always easy. It's not like it's always honeymoon. So uh, we did show love. We do show love. And that's what we want to do is show God's love everywhere that we can. So when you go on uh, these missions to uh, whether it's a, a natural disaster like you've been in the Philippines and Japan and the tsunami or whether it's a, a war like like uh, we just discussed, how do you think generally people respond when they feel God's love through you to them or your love directly to them? How does it influence them? Or is someone who's suffering like that normally, perhaps this case you discussed with exception, perhaps not, are they able to abstract or is the pain so intense in the moment that they're just being treated? It, it's all of the above. As Christians, we want to point people to Jesus Christ. We, we want to follow the commands of the Bible. We want to show God's love and we want people to know that God loves them. And that as Christians, we believe that Jesus was the ultimate act of, of love, God's sacrifice. 
but the range of emotions that they're dealing with, they're in a ditch of life. Right. Uh, They've been bombed or, you know, their relatives have died of Ebola or the whole community has been ravaged by a tsunami, an earthquake or or whatever. So you, you see this whole gambit. People coming into relationship with God, we can be a part of that, but that's not, it's not like I'm going to sell you the Encyclopedia Britannica. And if you don't buy it, I just need to work harder to sell that to you. It just isn't going to work that way. But we are uh, an introductory phrase. A lot of people, a lot of people ask us what you just said. Why are you here? Why have you come here? I will always remember in uh, 1999 in Albania when uh, Kosovo had been attacked by Serbia and about a million, 900,000 Kosovars came over into Albania. We built the refugee camp there. I was there leading that effort. And the Spanish army would bring in three to 400 refugees every night. Our camp was big enough for about 20,000 people. And they would bring them in in a train. And these poor people would have then moved from a train into the back of military trucks. And they had driven for an hour, hour and a half on a dirt road. And they would arrive to us at four in the morning and just covered with dust. And they don't know where they are. And um, I, re- I had a little speech that I did. I would get up in the back of the truck and I would tell them my name and introduce my interpreter. And I would tell them the location where they were. And, and that we're going to move to get them into a tent, checked in, and in the morning we'll do a registration. And I said, I've never ran a refugee camp before, and you've never been refugees before, but I will help you. We're here to help you. And, and, and that turned out well uh, doing that. But in that array of people, you found some that next morning were energetic, had their sleeves rolled up, and they're right out there working with everybody else doing whatever, digging ditches or cooking food or whatever. Or there were some who were so traumatized they needed like help that was way beyond uh, you know, what I was able to provide at that time. So you, you see that whole vast array, but so many people come up and say, why are you here? Why have you come here? I remember in um, the fall of 1997, I was in South Sudan and I went up to a place where there was a battle. There had been a, a call on the radio to come and pick up six people who were wounded. We went up and got them around 6 p.m. at 1 p.m. in the night in South Sudan in a war zone, I got stuck. And so I sent a guy back. Stuck why? Stuck by an authority or stuck by the... It was, it was real muddy and, and my truck got high centered, you know, the four wheels or in truck rides. And they brought back about 75 rebel fighters and ultimately they ended up picking our land cruiser up and setting it over out of the ruts, physically picking it up. But at one point I had climbed in under the truck and was trying to dig it out and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and pulled me a little bit and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm trying to get the truck out. And the person reached down then with authority and got me by the collar and pulled me out into his face. And I'm not going to name him because he's, he's a known figure. He said, no, I'm asking you, what are you doing? You're in a war zone at one o'clock in the morning, laying in the mud. And what are you doing here? The existential, what are you doing here? And so what did, what did you answer? Well, I told him, I said, I told you, I'm trying to get the truck out. I'm trying to help you. I'm here to help you. <laughs> yeah, but he and I are, are to this day, we're, we're lifelong friends over that, you know? So there's the, the, the vast array. But I think what's important, Mark, is that everybody is one person. And you want to be one person all the time. If you have multiple faces and, and you're different things to different people, it becomes complicated in, in life, you know? If you're living from the love of God, if you love your neighbors yourself, then you act one way all the time. And that's a beautiful way to, and that's what it says here, when, when God finishes the passage, it says, I am Hashem, I am Hashem. So you, who are you? I'm Ken Isaacs, and that's who I am. And yeah. Now, in addition to the extraordinarily effective humanitarian work you've done, or as a, as a not addition to it, as a part of it, you've had to negotiate 
with some pretty difficult people. You've had to negotiate and deal with some evil people who have significant authority over very good and very innocent people and very often persecute them. What makes someone evil? Well, in a way, evil is a subjective thing, but in another way, it's very objective in that you can see the facts, you can see what they do. In, in, in this world of political correctness today, uh, you know, it's almost wrong to call something evil, but evil, evil hurts people. Evil inflicts pain, evil oppresses, evil denies what I feel like are the inalienable, which is freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of movement. These things are given by God, not given by government. If I'm in a situation where innocents are being killed and it's not collateral damage, I mean, if they're targeted to be killed. And, you, and you've seen that plenty of times in your career. Yeah. And then the challenge is, okay, how do you go talk to the commanders of the people that are leading the evil and not get sideways with them? I have this saying that if you're around people with guns, it's a good idea if they're your friends. You know, I don't want to get confrontational, although I have, you know, I can be confrontational. But what I'm thinking about is what can I do and how can I do it for the greater good? And the thing that I'm going for is not to assuage my, my ego or my self-identity, but, but it's, it's to create a better environment for whatever's going on and whoever's suffering. But how do, how, how do you convince someone who intentionally inflicts suffering on the innocent to allow you to do humanitarian work, to save those innocent and then to ameliorate the pain of those innocent? I wish there was a formula to it, and I can tell you what it is. It doesn't always work, but one mark of success is to walk away from the negotiation with and not be shot. You know, you don't want to get shot. And then another mark is that you have improved access. Everything in the world that I do is, let's say, in the area of God room and in the area of humanitarian access. And if you can't get access, then you can't help people. But I have found that if you can get to the people that are making decisions and reason with them, even the cold, most cold-hearted people typically have some soft spot in them. If you can talk down to it, if you can dig into it, get into it for the women and the children and, and the old, that there's some soft spot in there for them. That's not true always. Some of the terrorist movements that we have seen in the last 10 years, 15 years, like that's just not true. They'll kill anybody. But then you need to appeal to either the optics of what they're doing, or you need to appeal to what is to their advantage, and you just have to negotiate. And there's, like I said, there's never a formula. You just have to keep working on it, knowing what your goal is, and you want to get as close to that goal as possible. But negotiation, whether it's with a rebel group, whether it's with a terrorist group, whether it's with kidnappers, whether it's with, you know, a first world government like the United States or Japan or uh, China, you, you've always got to go through these negotiations to seek permission. We had to do a lot of negotiations in New York City during COVID, and uh, we were asked to come there. Uh, we were invited to come there, and but still we had to negotiate with everybody to, to work out all the permissions and all of that. So that that's a, a, a radically different kind of thing than would be in a war zone. But, you know, in a way, it's a very hectic atmosphere, like a war zone in a way. And um, the people in New York, people in Italy, they were very much wanting to see positive things happen. And that's what we were. So it was much easier to come together. In Mosul, in Rwanda, with some of the groups in Congo, uh, some of the groups in Liberia, they're just like crazy. And uh, they don't engage in, in rational conversation. So sometimes you have to make a decision 
if, if there are different factions involved and civilians have ran the different factions, where can you help? You, you, you know, you're not able to help everywhere. To be neutral, do you need to divide 50% of your help to people in one faction and 50% on the other faction? A lot of times, I mean, I really haven't had to make that kind of a decision too often. More often, it's about where is the humanitarian access and where is the humanitarian need? And if they merge together in the same place, then that would be the more obvious and desirable place to try to locate it and help as many people as you can right there. So, so when, when you, you've spent your life identifying and chasing suffering in the ability to ameliorate it. So what you're saying is it's a function of the greatest need and the greatest access. That's, 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 so there's a formula, that's it. Greatest need times greatest access. That's where you go. And that tragically means that places where there may be great need, but no access, you can't go. That's right. There, there are places that you can't get to. Like we couldn't actually, in the fighting for Mosul, we couldn't be inside of Mosul helping people on the ISIS side. Why not? Well, they'll kill you. So you're not going to go there. You know? But during the war in Bosnia, I frequently went across the lines and I talked with commanders on the other side and pleaded for the sake of the victims on the side that they were attacking. Either let us have passage to get these people out to take them to a hospital. We need 48 hours. Please stop shelling for 48 hours. Let us move the women and the children out or let us bring the medical equipment and supplies and whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of negotiations. But I trust in God's provision and protection and his favor. And, you know, the Bible says in First James verse 5 in the New Testament, pray to God and ask him for wisdom in all that you do. So those are little speed prayers as you're walking through the door, getting ready to meet a guy who's got 50 tanks in his front yard and 500 armed men around him. I'll do a little speed prayer when I'm going in. Oh, God, give me favor right now. Listen, what to say, because I got no idea what to say to this man. And, and will, will God provide? I think he always, yeah, he does. So, so let's take that very practical example. So you're offering this speed prayer. Great term. Never heard it. You're offering this speed prayer as you go into meet with someone who has effectively an army that may be your enemy right outside. And does your prayer give you the strength and the wisdom to say something that may, that you, you talked before about maybe that person has a soft spot for women and children? Like, does the prayer work in that sense? In that you don't know what you're going to say, you offer the speed prayer, and then for whatever reason, you're, you're in the moment and you know how to open it up and to get the access that you need to help the people who need it. The short answer is yes. I'll tell you a specific example. 2001, November, Mazari Sharif, Afghanistan, right after 9-11. So I was in New York City at 9-11. Then I, I flew to Afghanistan. I went to Uzbekistan and came down across the Peace Bridge. And I met with a man named Mohammed Atta. He's the governor of Mazari Sharif. That's the same name as the pilot of the plane that flew the first plane in. So we had tanks in his yard and hundreds of men. They were Mujahideen warriors. You know, when you go to somebody's house, they have tanks. It means something. You know, I enjoy looking at machinery and stuff. But uh, when I went in to see him, God, give me words to say right now. And it's intimidating. You're in a big room and all the chairs are back up against the walls. They're like thrones. And, and there sits the big man at the end. What are you going to say with him? You've got an audience. So, so you were uh, there to, to do what? Medical care, food relief, agriculture. What was your purpose? Yes. We wanted to have permission to set up a, a field office there for the sake of medicine for the sake of education, for the sake of clean water, and for shelter. At that time, there was about 1.2, 1.3 million refugees, Afghan refugees in Pakistan, that we wanted to be a part of seeing some of them come back and, and wanted to help them. But you've got to have permission of the people with guns. 
doesn't matter what you think about guns. You got to have their permission because they're the residing government of the, the land. So I said, General, you know, my name's Ken. I'm with this organization, Samaritan's Purse. We're an American group, and we, we we've come to help you, help your people. And he said, Well, you're welcome. You can come. And I said, Well, I want you to know something. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We're Christians. If if that's going to be a problem, please tell me now because we don't want to make a problem for you. And I felt like I needed to disclose that to you. You can't go in and pretend you're not who you are because that's there's going to be a serious consequence for that. And he said, you're welcome. You come in and he said, you'll be under my protection. So we went to the village of Colm, which is about 60 kilometers directly due east of Missouri Sharif. And we had an office there from uh, January of uh, 2002 until uh, about April of 2007. We built a 25-bed surgical hospital. We rebuilt over 12 schools, probably drilled 80 wells, uh, distributed food to hundreds of thousands of people, and had over 4,500 people, families, that returned back as a part of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees program. So God gave us favor. He gave me wisdom in that meeting. He gave us favor. And that man gave us favor, and he allowed us to come into Afghanistan. Were you surprised that he allowed you? No, that's what I went for. That's what I expected. I just wanted to find the way. But in that meeting, did you did you think he would say you're welcome or did you think it would be more complicated than that? I probably expected it to be a little bit more complicated. But, you know, when you're with the guy with the tanks in his yard, when he says yes, it's a it's a pretty dictatorial yes. And it, it stands out to all of his people, you know. And, and think and think of how many people you, you saved, educated, cured and helped in that in those five years. Yeah, well, I was just in that formulative period, you know, I wasn't there through all of it, but I had my finger on the wheel in the beginning. And, and those beginning steps, those relationships that are formed up, those are really the key things, what sets the tone and tenor for everything else from that point on. So before we get to the final question, um, I, I'd like you to make a promise to the listeners for the, for the rabbi's husband. I promise I will listen to the rabbi's husband. And that's because you will a personal friend, and I know the rabbi too. That's right. The request is that you write your memoirs. Uh-huh. You, have so, you have so many stories to tell and so many lessons to teach and so much wisdom to impart. You owe the world your memoirs. So I'm working on them, Mark. I'm about uh, six or 10 chapters into them. I think we've outlined 16. I've got a guy helping me write it. The problem, quite honestly, is like, I don't have time to sit down and read. what. But he has taken hours and hours, hundreds of hours of materials from me. If I die, uh, Aaron can finish writing it, but I would like to see it completed and assembled while I'm still here. Right. So God willing, soon enough. Now, uh, the final question always goes, uh, we switch from one text, the the Torah, to another text, which is Andre Melrose's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells a story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I had served in the war. And he said, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to this man, um, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. He said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> so Ken, in all of your years as really the world's great humanitarian into chasing suffering in all kinds, in all places, and meeting all kinds of people and seeing more than most people can imagine, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I would say that what I have learned is that there is no limit on the depravity of man. Interesting. What, what one man will do to another man or to a group of people is absolutely unbelievable. And I, I can't get that out of my mind. And there's no limit. We like to believe that the default position of mankind is goodness. But I disagree strongly with that. 
Hmm. If, if there are not moral boundaries and moral authority around people, the default position is evil. It's darkness and it's chaos. And I have seen that in a way that I think very few other people in the world have seen it. Uh, the other thing that I believe is that God is an all-loving God and that no matter what anyone has done, if they seek a relationship with God, that door is open. These would be my two big life lessons, I think. Fascinating. Well, uh, I would like to recommend to everyone listening to watch the movie Facing Darkness, which is the story of Ken Isaacs and his colleagues at Samaritan's Purse in Liberia in 2014 when Ebola struck Monrovia. And it is such a beautiful story of genuine heroism and action in the face of suffering where we see everything from Samaritan's Purse doctors to Ebola to we actually see at one point what seems to be the presence of God when the air, with the airplane. Uh, so please watch Facing Darkness. And Ken, uh, thank you for, well, for coming on The Rabbi's Husband, but really thank you for, uh, I mean, on behalf of everybody, really, for all the work that you have done for humankind over many decades at personal risk that, that talk about unimaginable, that's unimaginable. But you've done it because you have so internalized and so lived the, uh, the love of the stranger and the love of the neighbor that we read about in the Bible. And you've lived it and shown us all and have, and have uh, brought so much to so many people. So Ken, uh, thank you. Mark, thank you for your friendship. Thank Erica. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this podcast and I'm honored uh, to be your guest today. I know that on a personal side that you do a lot to help people around the world. And I don't know how much folks may or may not know about that, but I know that you're very involved in these things. I'm just deeply appreciative and honored to know you and to be called your friend. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, it's our great honor to be, to be your friend. So thank you. You are the God of the brave. If you